Hello and welcome to another episode of The Recommended Dose with me, Ray Moynihan. Today in conversation with Julian Elliott, the well-travelled Australian doctor, researcher and big picture thinker who aims to use new technology to radically improve health systems and access to evidence for people around the world, be they in high or low income countries. With positions at Monash University and Cochrane Australia and a specialist treating people with HIV-AIDS at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, Julian's also something of a futurist. So at a time when all kinds of websites, apps and wearable devices are ingesting our health and personal data, I asked Julian to set out what the consequences of this might be for all of us. Should we be concerned about how our personal data will be used or hopeful about the promise that this increasing deluge of data holds for understanding and improving human health? What does it mean for us as individuals and for health research and evidence more broadly? Well, I guess the final reckoning of the balance of positives and negatives is yet to come. Um, But I think at this point, it's clear that there are many, many potential benefits for the way that we can better use data. But before we get to the future, we look to the past to understand the origins of Julian's deep and personal commitment to improving the health and care of people everywhere. Yeah, so I guess this really started for me when I was actually a, a kid when my um, my sister had a um, chronic medical condition called mixed connective tissue disorder, which is a bit like uh, a condition known as lupus. And, uh, you know, so she was quite unwell through her teenage years. And then uh, in her early adult life, uh, she was diagnosed with a condition that affects the lungs, some scarring of the blood vessels in her lungs. And um, she eventually died from that um, as a young adult. And, you know, what was clear then was that her death probably could have been prevented um, if she'd um, received the right care um, as a a teenager. And uh, I guess for me that really started a, you know, pretty deep and existential interest in, you know, how can we, how can we avoid situations like that? How can we improve the care of people um, with different illnesses and particularly an interest in the systems? Because, you know, in the end, her, her death was um, a uh, avoidable medical error. You know, if someone had put a stethoscope on her chest and listened to her heart at an earlier age, she would have been diagnosed much earlier and uh, could have had treatment and probably would have still been alive today. So that's probably the, um, the start of my interest in evidence and, uh, and the use of evidence to improve healthcare and outcomes for people. I'm very sorry to hear that story, Julian. Um, d- does your sister's death, is that something that stays with you? Does it, does it continue to drive you today? Yeah, I think it does, actually. Um, I mean, I think for anyone who's lost someone close to them, you know, there's always a sense of their passing. And, uh, yeah, I think for me it's obviously operates at quite a deep level, but I think it does help drive me in, in the things that I'm, that I'm doing to try and improve the way we generate and use evidence to improve healthcare. So you trained as a doctor. Um, where did you train? 
I mostly trained in Melbourne. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time in the Northern Territory, also working in Aboriginal communities there. Um, and I think as many of your listeners will know, there's you know a lot of quite striking difficulties that Aboriginal people have with their health. And so, you know, again, for me, the, uh, the thing that really struck me was that, you know, we can provide the sort of individual clinical care, but, you know, you do get a sense that actually to make a real difference, you've got to look at the underlying systems and and try and make a, a, a sort of deeper or more widespread change to really shift the health of, um, you know, of large numbers of people. So then in the, I think in the early 2000s or around that time, you ended up working in Cambodia, um, pre- presumably uh, in, in HIV AIDS. T- tell me a bit about, about the experiences, what you were doing there, what you did. Yeah, I went to um, Cambodia with the University of New South Wales and originally it was planned that I would spend most of my time setting up research projects. Um, but in fact, that took quite a time to evolve. So over the first two or three years I was there, I actually spent most of my time working with the Cambodian Minister of Health um, to set up HIV treatment programs. Um, you know, this was the era when effective HIV treatment was available in high-income countries but was only available to a very few people in low- and middle-income countries. So the, the disparities in access to care and outcomes were, you know, were just extraordinary. They were so striking and, and so disturbing. So at that time in Cambodia, there was the largest HIV epidemic in, in Cambodia, uh, sorry, in Asia. And um, there were 25,000 people dying each year from uh, from HIV AIDS. And, uh, you know, again, this is at a time when in Australia, most people with HIV were on treatment and, and doing very well. So um, I was working with the Cambodian government there to try and get treatment out to people as, um, as quickly as we could. And how did that project go? I, I'm, I think many listeners will have a sense of just how difficult it was to get those... Um those medicines that were available but weren't affordable in, in low-income countries. I mean, how did, 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 were you able to turn that around? Yeah, I think um, some people may have heard of an organisation called the Global Fund, um, which was an extraordinary initiative uh, by many countries to, um, to fund HIV prevention and treatment at scale in low and, low and middle-income countries. And that fund... Um, awarded Cambodia a very large grant to make treatment available. And that together with some very innovative Indian pharmaceutical companies who dramatically reduced the the, um, price of of the HIV medications meant that for the first time we had a real prospect of of treating large numbers of people in in countries like Cambodia. So that gave us the resources um, to make treatment available. We then had to work very hard um, over a number of years to, you know, make that a reality. Um, and this is really where my more, I guess, detailed interest in the way that evidence is, is used came from because I was working together with, um, you know, many very bright, very committed Cambodians who, you know, were working hard to, to get these um, programs set up. And, uh, and we knew that people were doing similar things all around the world. Um, but it was very difficult at that time to to try and find the evidence that we needed um, to make the right decisions. You know, we were having to make decisions every day, either at a policy level or into sort of detailed um, 
clinical practice guidelines. Uh, but, you know, trying to find, you know, trustworthy, up-to-date evidence to, to help us make the right decisions was extremely difficult. You know, in the end, I, I was spending a lot of my time acting as a conduit between what you could think of as the, the knowledge of the world, the knowledge the world was generating, uh, and, you know, um, the many, many Cambodians who are working to set up these programs. And it really struck me that you didn't need a, you shouldn't need an expat sitting in country doing that. Um, you know, these bright, committed Cambodians should be able to access that, that research evidence, you know, in a way that works for them, um, that is trustworthy uh, and, it, you know, is up to date with, with the latest knowledge. But, um, you know, that just wasn't possible. Before we talk about some of the technologies and some of the some of the plans that you have to really address that issue, um, let's talk a little bit more about your work as a you know as a, as a doctor that you know you actually treat people. I think in, in in a clinic in Melbourne at the Alfred Hospital, you treat people with HIV and AIDS, and you you also help develop guidelines uh, for the best way to treat people. G- give us a sense of some of the challenges in that work and also some of the rewards of that work. Yeah, it's very interesting. Now, you know, for many people with HIV, they are on treatment. That treatment uh, suppresses the virus, so it doesn't doesn't get rid of the virus. We can't yet cure HIV. But it does mean that um, for many people, their physical health can be quite good. And for many people, they have a normal life expectancy. Of course, there are many people who are still affected by some of the effects of, of HIV from before they had access to effective treatment. So they're dealing with a lot of chronic complications of the infection. But for many people now, particularly younger people who, who get onto treatment early, actually the physical health can be, quite, can be quite good. I think the greatest challenge for people with HIV now is, is really about the social consequences of living with HIV. And, um, you know, if anything this may even be worse than it was in the 1990s. I think back then, you know, there was a lot of awareness of HIV and I think many people, you know, felt very, um, very empathetic and very supportive of people who were, who were dealing with a life of um, being with HIV. Um, but I think now general awareness has, has decreased and in some ways ignorance has increased. So, you know, many, many of my patients, the, the major issues they have in their life is is really about the stigma and discrimination um, that's still prevalent in our society. And that really impacts on their ability to to navigate the world and particularly to develop close friendships, relationships. You know, that has quite a quite a significant impact on people's lives. They often become quite socially isolated. As well as providing individual patient care, Julian Elliott devotes a great deal of his time and energy to employing new technology to understand, connect and reshape the practices and systems used to produce, synthesise and share research evidence. And he's been at the forefront of the development of what are called living systematic reviews. That is, online summaries of the best health evidence, which are updated as soon as new information becomes available. This concept of real-time living evidence is of increasing interest to people who produce evidence, people who make guidelines, people who run health systems, and doctors and other professionals around the world, as a way to connect different pieces of the evidence puzzle and make them accessible. 
I asked Julian if this approach represents a radical departure for health organisations and researchers in terms of the traditional methods used to gather, analyse and share their findings and what the implications of this might be. Yeah, I think this is a, I think it's a great question. I think what we see at the moment is there's there's the world of what you could call conventional evidence-based practice. It's the world that has developed over the last 30 years by Cochrane and others of systematically making sense of uh, research. But alongside that, there's been, you know, very exciting developments in what's been called data science. Uh, which is about using more and more sophisticated techniques for using raw data. And often these data are generated not through specific research projects, but just at, are a, uh, what's called a data exhaust, or they're, they're generated as an incidental output from routine systems. So, for example, when you have a stay in hospital, of course, a lot of data are generated there and and, and that data can be captured and it can be used um, in, in very innovative ways uh, for new insights, for understanding what happened to you, um, what the influences were on the outcomes that you experienced. So those developments are very exciting, but I think at the moment we do have a bit of divide between these two scientific communities. And in the end, that may contribute to ongoing confusion about the best way we use both research and data to understand um, the effects of healthcare interventions or other health questions. So one of the um, projects we're working on is is developing uh, systems that can draw those two communities together. <laughs> it is a, in some ways, a cultural challenge. It's very Kuhnian, as it were, of, of trying to break down the barriers between um, different scientific communities and getting people to collaborate, interact and talk together so that we can have not a, not a final consensus about the way we use all of these data, but at least a, a common language and a common way of approaching all of the rich outputs from research and, and routine care. Often I, I tend to see a, a distinction, if you will, between, between two elements in science, the, the innovation and the evaluation. And it's my sense that, that, that there's, a, there's a sort of a public appreciation of the, the innovation, the innovative parts of science, but there's often not enough appreciation of the need for really good evaluation. It, it strikes me that what you're doing, in a sense, is bringing the two together. You're, you're thinking of innovative ways. You're using technological innovation to actually improve evaluation. Yeah, I think that what we're aware of is that um, you can think of this connection between knowledge and practice is, uh, is not optimised. I think of it sometimes as like a copper wire <laughs> connecting, you know, the world of research knowledge um, and, and the world of health systems and health practice. And uh, to me, it just seems insane that we spend, uh, you know, billions of dollars on, on doing research studies and we spend trillions of dollars on our health systems and yet we don't have the tools that are fit for purpose to make sense of all that research and connect the two in a way that will really drive the best health outcomes. I mean, I often reflect that if you ask someone in the street, you know, when you see a health professional, 
do you think they have access to trustworthy, up-to-date summaries of research evidence um, to guide the way that they provide care for you? And I think most people would think that's a given. Of course, don't they? (laughs) You know, um, I would be surprised if they didn't. But I think that the reality is, unfortunately, we don't have the tools to make that a reality. So let's uh, take this example of, of living evidence and using technology to, to get this up-to-date uh, summaries available. Take us back to the Cambodia situation and, and if you succeed in developing some of these new technologies and they're, and they're rolled out, how could these new technologies help uh, that situation back in Cambodia that you described where, where people were struggling to find information to help make decisions? Well, I think one of the most exciting aspects of this work is, is thinking about how the, um, how the research evidence can be delivered to people. Um, so we ourselves are very focused on, on systematic review, on this step of synthesising research evidence into a trustworthy summary. But we work very closely with colleagues who are developing systems that can then take that research evidence and then, again, efficiently um, develop uh, guideline recommendations, but then also connect through to other tools that people can use um, for their own decisions. So some of those are what we call decision aids. So they're um, sometimes visual or graphical presentations of uh, research evidence so that individual people, health consumers, can make a decision Uh, about their own health. So, you know, one of the challenges in Cambodia, just to to get into the specifics, is that uh, there's an even greater uh, asymmetry of of knowledge about health than there may be in other settings. And and I think people in Cambodia really struggle trying to know what the best course of action should be uh, for a particular... um, health condition they may have and are often dealing with limited resources and a lot of conflicting um, views from, say, traditional practitioners, um, private practitioners, perhaps nurses or others they might see in the public system. And, you know, for for my own family, we we have many Cambodian friends who've unfortunately received, you know, very, very harmful care in the end, very suboptimal. And I think... Ultimately, you know, if we can if we can deliver a system which means that you know everyday people in Cambodia would be able to access you know trustworthy, up to date, usable um, uh, decision aids that can help them make decisions about their own health um, based upon you know the world's research knowledge, I think that would be a fantastic outcome. Do you think that will happen? <laughs> uh, yeah, I do, actually. I do. I think that, you know, we have the, the foundations for that already in place. We've got some examples of, of you know, where we can uh, take research evidence through systematic reviews and guidelines into those decision aids, you know, very efficiently. Um, and we know from a lot of research evidence those decision aids can also be very effective in, in helping people make the right decisions. So we have the foundations there. 
You're listening to The Recommended Dose with me, Ray Moynihan. Our guest today is Australian doctor, researcher and technology aficionado, Julian Elliott. You're talking a lot about technology, and for some of us, it can be it can be quite scary. I mean, I think there are apps now that that will actually diagnose people. And in fact, someone pulled out their mobile phone the other day at a meeting where I work, and they started recording people's voices and 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 diagnosing the 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 emotional or tone or the or even the mental state of that person. And, and I and I think there are apps now that do in fact diagnose. I mean, is this is this technology gone mad? What, 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 what do you think? <laughs> I think that, you know, technology is clearly going to make an enormous contribution to the way that um, people are diagnosed and managed in healthcare systems. There's no question. And, and I think, you know, really throughout the systems, um, there will be um, very positive impacts from technology. I think that what you're touching on is, you know, this concern about uh, the capability of machines that seem to be getting to a point that are perhaps human-like or superhuman. And I think also concerns about, you know, who controls those machines and particularly who controls those data. And I think those concerns are, are very real. It's really incumbent upon all of us to get involved in the discussions um, and the processes that will really shape the way those technologies are used. You know, any technology will produce both benefits and harms. And of course, what we need to do is is work to maximise the benefits. And so a lot of that is really about um, our societies and our governments um, really getting into the detail and understanding what the capabilities of these technologies are now and the way that they're heading and starting to construct um, the sort of policy dialogue about how do we want to manage and best use those those technologies. And I think it it can't be from positions of hype nor of ignorance. You know, it has to be from the position of sort of informed um, analysis and so, you know, getting consumers and getting um, healthcare professionals um, and policymakers, you know, involved in technology development and involved in the discussions about how they're used, I think, is is a critical aspect of that. You're also leading a very innovative attempt to engage citizens around the world in the production of good evidence. You've helped set up this thing called Cochrane Crowd as an example of citizen science. Tell me a little bit about what that is. Cochrane Crowd is a, is a website uh, where anyone from around the world can go and contribute to the work of Systematic Review. So, you know, I think as a, would be clear from our discussion you know, we're really struggling to produce systematic reviews and keep up to date with the um, deluge of new research. And one of the ways we're now doing that is to send out a call for help, <laughs> to, to really call on people of the world to help us do this, to help us make sense of research um, in a way that is very rigorous and trustworthy so that people themselves can make the best decisions and also health professionals can also provide the best possible care. So what that involves is people going to the website, doing very brief training 
and then starting to do uh, some of the key tasks that are required in uh, systematic review. And I, I think I'm right in saying that you've had thousands and thousands of people um, volunteer. It, it seems like an extraordinary success. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think um, many people work in the area um, will ask the question, why would anyone in their right mind go to a website and start categorising research in this way? But, you know, I think that people are... Um, are very interested in making a contribution and, and really helping us to make sense of research. And in addition to the tasks I just described, there are more and more tasks being developed and, and put onto the crowd platform, including uh, tasks that, in, that involve describing the topic of a, of a research article or helping to extract information from a research article or from a table or a graph and, um, you know, this is a very, very real contribution. The work that the contributors do on the crowd platform, you know, directly affects our ability to, to synthesise evidence in a way that's trustworthy and, and then supply that evidence uh, for health practitioners and others around the world. From working with citizen scientists, patients, fellow researchers and leading data scientists to travelling, presenting and writing, Julian Elliott is clearly a very busy man. I ended our conversation by asking just what it is that sustains his relentless pace and all his work to change the worlds of health and evidence. I think I... Um I'm pretty driven. I I don't actually have a hobby. I do uh, I do keep fit by cycling, but um, I think the thing that really sustains me is this sense that you know the problems which I have seen you know for many many years. What I can see now is that they're shifting. Um, that's what really excites me, and I think really drives me towards you know contributing to this work. Um, we talked earlier about. You know, I guess how it's affected me personally and, you know, the, the sense I get that we will soon be able to have systems that can much more readily drive health practice, you know, with high quality, trustworthy and up-to-date research evidence, you know, really excites me. And uh, I don't have any trouble getting motivated in the morning to continue to work on that. I think it's a, it's a, it's a very important uh, challenge for healthcare systems around the world, and I think we have a very real chance of um, of uh, making a difference and, and and creating a system which I think will um, you know dramatically improve the um, situation we have now. Julian, it's a rare and um, and very fun opportunity to talk to someone who's very positive about the future uh, for all the right reasons. So thank you very much for your time today. Not at all. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. That was a conversation with Julian Elliott, and it was the final episode of the Recommended Dose for this year. And thank you to everyone who's been listening to these conversations. If you've enjoyed them, please subscribe to the show, rate and review us, or recommend the dose to others. You'll find all the episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks to producer Shauna Hurley, editor Jan Mutz and to Cochrane Australia, the funder of this podcast series. We've all very much enjoyed bringing you these conversations with some of the world's leading health researchers, writers and thinkers. 
And we look forward to sharing more of these conversations with you in Series 2 of The Recommended Dose next year. I'll get out of your way now. Cheers. Cheers.